scripture reading this morning comes from Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. If you're using the Black Pew Bibles in front of you, you can find it on page 1861. Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. Please rise for the reading of God's word. And you are dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming of in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. This is the word of the Lord. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, you have given us your word, a word that is breathed out by you and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. And Father, I pray that you would help me, your servant, this morning, as I have the responsibility, the privilege, and honor to preach your word. For I come before you not in strength nor in power, but I come before you in weakness and with great trembling. And we pray that the word that comes from my mouth, that is found in your word, the scriptures, may convict our hearts of areas in which we need to give over to you. And may the promise that you gave to Isaiah, the fact that your word goes out and does not return void, but that it accomplishes that which you purpose, would be done this morning. And we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. So I don't know if you've observed or seen this in the world, but we live in a world that is tit for tat. That you scratch my back and I'll scratch your back. If you do me a favor, then I'll do you a favor later, right? And if you owe me something, I'm eventually going to call that favor in. Nothing is ever for free. You can't live in a home for free. You have to pay rent or mortgage. You can't even get an iPhone for free. You have to go to the Apple store and purchase the phone. You can't even get a degree from university for free. You have to pay tuition. There is no tuition-free university. 
And this philosophy in this world of tit for tat, you get what you pay for, is everywhere. And so it's no surprise to us, or at least it shouldn't be a surprise, that this particular economic philosophy also infiltrated the medieval Roman Catholic Church. Now, the Roman Catholic Church didn't say that you can buy your salvation. You didn't get out your money bag and put a few coins at the table at church and to buy a relationship with God. But you had to do certain things. If you lie, you go into the confessional and confess to the priest. The priest would say, son or daughter, your sins are forgiven. Go home for your penance, say five Hail Marys, and maybe you'll get grace from the Lord. Or you would pay an indulgence, a slip of paper signed by the Pope himself, saying that he would give you years off your time in purgatory to have a relationship with God. Or maybe even for a family member. Or you could take a pilgrimage to Rome if you had the money. You would walk the steps of Pilate. After every step, say a prayer, cross yourself. And maybe you could take some years off of your time in purgatory. Or even help a family member or friend to be able to have a relationship with God. Now, as you hear these things, you're going to be asking yourself this question, or at least you should, how do I have assurance that these things that I do will allow me to have a relationship with God? How do I know that I've said enough penance? How do I know if I've paid enough indulgences? How do I know if I made enough pilgrimages to those sacred places and said enough prayers to know that God will want a relationship with me? You see, that question plagued a monk named Martin Luther. It was on his mind. Because as much penance as he did, as many steps he climbed, he could never get rid of that nagging feeling. How could I be sure that God and I have a relationship? And this drove him to study the book of Romans, the book of Psalms, and he came to an understanding that we are dead in our sins. And because we are dead in our sins, there's no way that we can ever initiate a relationship with God, but that God had to graciously intervene into his life in order for him to have a relationship with the God Almighty. And so this would eventually prompt him to nail the 95 theses on the Wittenberg Castle. It would eventually cause him to stand trial before the Roman Catholic Church. And as Eck examined him, as he asked him, Luther, will you recant this teaching of grace alone? Sola gratia. Will you turn back? Martin Luther asked, well, give me a night to think about it. And in the morning, he comes before his Roman Catholic examiners, and he has this quote. He says this, Unless I am convicted by scripture and plain reason, I do not accept the authority of popes and councils, for they have contradicted each other. My conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and I will not recant anything, for to go against my conscience is neither right or safe. God help me. Amen. And that was the beginning barrage of the Reformation that Martin Luther was willing to stand for his conviction 
of the Reformation principle, grace alone. And we stand in that tradition as well. What is grace alone? What is grace? You know, people would give you the simple definition, unmerited favor. That's very simple. But what does that even mean? It means that you get something that you don't necessarily deserve. It's a higher power giving someone from lower power something that they can never gain in their own strength, in their own power, even in their might. It is a king who takes a pauper and raises him to be his son. Higher power to lower power. Unmerited favor, something that we do not deserve. But you know, to be honest, I didn't grow up in a family that was very gracious. You know, as I think back in my past, especially growing up, I didn't live in a gracious family. I remember I hated going to Chinese restaurants to have dinner with my extended family. Now, it's not because I hate Chinese food. I love Chinese food. You know, clams, stir-fried black bean sauce, my favorite, you know, or uh, salted pepper shrimp or sweet and sour pork. Those are things that I love to eat. See, it wasn't the meal, the beginning or the middle. It was actually the end that I dreaded. You know, when you, the last plate comes on the table, the red bean soup comes out, and then all the adults in the table certainly become more alert than you've ever seen them ever because they're looking out for the bill, right? And they're looking, examining, wait, who is the waiter who's going to bring the bill to us? And then once the bill hits the table, those old aunties and uncles, they spring into action faster than I have ever seen in my life. They are the exemplification of Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon. You know, it's like they've learned that lesson in those kung fu films where the master says, little grasshopper, take the pebble from my hand. You know, and they would grasp it so quickly. And my aunts, who would be in this cane, would jump up and grab that bill without regard of who she would shove aside. Why? Why did she spend so much energy to pay the bill for a meal amongst family? It's because she didn't want to be indebted to the other family members, saying that now I owe them a meal. I owe them a lunch. Because she didn't want to owe anyone anything. You think, well, this is kind of a trivial example, but I have another example. When my wife Josephine and I got married, my mom had us log every single wedding gift and each value for that wedding gift. And I would make this list and give it to her because she said, I need the list so that if your uncle invites me to a wedding for his son or for his daughter, I will give them the same gift of monetary value. And we're like, what is going on, right? That's not a gift. It's reciprocation. It's giving back what you gave me. Now you may think, well, Henry, you just grew up in a family that's not gracious. But, you know, we really don't like grace because when your birthday comes around and you get a gift, you make a mental note of it, say, all right, note to self, when so-and-so's birthday comes around next year, I have to remember to get them a gift. Otherwise, I'm going to be a very bad friend. 
that there's no free lunch. It's tit for tat. And you know what else we don't really like about grace? You know, what, if we're truly honest with ourselves, is that grace says to us that we're undeserving, right? Who wants to be told, you don't deserve anything? It wasn't because of your job. It wasn't because of your family. It's not even about how good looking you are. I have given it to you just because I want it to. And you say to yourself, but, 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 isn't there anything about me? Not even my charming personality that deserves this gift? No. If we really think about grace, if we really meditate upon it, if we really reflect on this idea of grace alone, we find in our hearts that we don't really like it very much. Not because of what we have to do in response to it, but also what grace says about us, that we're undeserving. And yet, if the reformers were willing to give their lives for this particular principle, grace alone, shouldn't we have a greater appreciation for it? Shouldn't we be grateful for the fact that the reformers found the idea of grace alone? How do we, as ungracious people we are, learn to appreciate grace? How do we embrace this idea of grace alone? To answer that question, we're going to be going to the letter of Ephesians, written by Paul, which hopefully your Bible's already turned there. Now, if you ever read the, you know, Ephesians in its entirety, you'll find that Paul writes this particular letter to exemplify the work that God has done in our lives to bring us into relationship with himself, but also to talk about the importance of unity within the church. And so we're going to focus our time specifically in the first half, in Ephesians chapter 2 verse 1 through 10. And in this text, we'll see three things. We'll answer three questions. The first question is, what is the danger of sin? What is the danger of sin? And the second question is, what is our deliverance from sin? What saves us? What rescues us from sin? Because when we understand those two questions, we have a decision that's before us. What will we do in light of that? And the decision we make will demonstrate whether or not we truly appreciate grace alone. So three things, the danger, the deliverance, and also the decision. All right, so moving into kind of the first question, what is the danger of sin? Well, sin sets us adrift from God. Sin separates from God. It's as though sin drops you in the middle of the ocean with no boat or ship in sight. And you're left without a life vest, treading water. And land is miles and miles away. Now, you may think to yourself, well, I can tread water pretty well. I was on the swim team. You know, I played polo. You know, I can tread ah, fairly well. But not for days, not for weeks, because eventually your arms would tire, and you're separated from health, from food, from water. And in some ways, you're dead in the water, right? And the Bible, or at least Paul, writes this in verse 1, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins. 
that you were separated from God because of your trespass and sin. Now you may think to yourself, well, what is a trespass? It's as though your neighbor has this beautiful peach tree in his front lawn. He has the best peaches that you've ever tasted in your life. They're sweet, crunchy, juicy. And it's so prominent in his front yard, but there's a sign, right? There's a sign. First line, no trespassing. And right below that, stay off the tree, right? But then there's a weekend, you know that your neighbor's family, they've went off on a vacation. You see them load up in their minivan, they drive off, and your wife is making peach cobbler that night. And you're thinking, man, I love to have those peaches. Just one of them. You walk in front of that lawn, you see tens of them. And you think, ah, my neighbor's not going to miss three, four, and he has hundreds. So you take your sack, you know, you look around, start picking them, right? And you've committed then two trespasses. You trespassed because you got on his property and you made the second trespass. You got on his tree, you stole his peaches. Now, I'm not saying that we steal from God's peach tree, but I am saying that we do violate God's rules. We violate God's law. Now, he also talks about sin, right? You're dead in also your sins. And sin has this idea of missing the mark. So I've learned in Texas, Texans enjoy going out to the gun range and shooting. So let's say your friend decides to take you to test out his new Glock 19, right? And you set up the silhouette. You goes down a few yards, and you take out your pistol, and you start to fire off rounds until you deplete the whole magazine. And then you get the silhouette back, you look at the silhouette, and you see, man, that's a nice pattern, your nice concentration, but you kind of missed the bullseye. The bullseye's right here. But all your, you know, rounds went around here, and you've missed the mark. That you failed to meet the holy standard of God. Now, some of you may be thinking, well, I don't believe in the Bible. You know, I don't believe that we should worship God alone. I don't think we should bow down to idols. I don't even know or even acknowledge the idea of don't lie. Okay, it's fine. If you think about sin and trespass, think about it this way. Anything that you want someone else to do, but you don't do it yourself. Right? Anything you know to be right, but you do. Now, you may be thinking, okay, so what is something that I think other people should do that I don't do? Well, let's say, you know, you work at a company where your employer requires you to log your time, right? And the employer will pay you for how much time you log. Now, you enjoy your lunches, right? And so you take a leisurely lunch. You're only allowed an hour, but you take an hour and a half. Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. Now, it comes time to log in your time. Now, for all your subordinates, you want to make sure that they log the right time because you don't want to overpay them. But you decide, well, you know, what will the employer think? You know, I don't know, two hours? They're not going to miss two hours. So you write down 40 hours, even though you didn't really work 40 hours. Right? It's something that you'd want someone else to do, but you don't. And that is a trespass and also sin. And then you're thinking, okay, well, I don't work. Well, how about for you, if you're at home, and a parent calls you and says, it's dinner time, and you're like, oh, but I really want to finish this Netflix episode, or I really want to really finish this level on my Xbox. 
And so you think, oh, mom and dad must really mean in five minutes, or in 10 minutes, or in 15 minutes. So you take your time. And you come down 15 minutes later, and of course your parents are angry and upset, and they yell at you and so forth. You're like, okay, I knew that to be expected. But let's turn the tables around. Let's say you want to be at your friend's house at a certain time. And your parents say, oh, just give me an extra 10, 15 minutes. I have to get dressed, you know, get ready, you know, have to take care of something, I have to finish this game. And you get upset and you get angry because, mom, dad, you have to get me to my friend's house on time. Right? Because you expect your parents to be on time. Now, you may think, well, tardiness is not necessarily a sin. Okay. I'll give you that. We're Asians, right? We were on an Asian time. So, but the question is, it's not the tardiness. It's the idea that, hey, I am the king of this house. I am God with little g. I determine when I go down for breakfast, whether my parents call me or not. I determine when I need to be at my friend's place because I am king. Now, that is a sin, right? And you were dead in it, totally separated from God, apart from him. And there's a chasm that was so wide that you couldn't bridge it. Now you have to ask yourself, well, what compels us to this sinful disposition and sinful action? And Paul provides three things that compel us towards sinful activity. In verse Two, he kind of depicts the first one, and it's that the world shapes our dreams. In verse two, it says, in which you once walked following the course of this world. Now, the world in the New Testament always has a negative connotation. It's the evil world out there that's influencing us in here. It's just like Israel and the land of Canaan. They wanted fertility, and they pursued the dream of, we want a fertile land, so we are going to pursue the same things as the Canaanites. We'll engage in Baal worship, Asherah worship, cult prostitution. We'll do all those things in order to get fertility. Now, you may think to yourself, ah, we are not farmers. We don't have land to farm on. But you don't want to be fertile in that sense but you do want to be successful, don't you? And doesn't the world paint within us this mind that in order for you to have value, in order for us to have significance, in order to be seen, we have to be successful. We have to have that corner office on the eighth floor where we're looking out on the city over so many people. Or maybe it's that dream that once we get this degree, people will finally be able to recognize because to be recognized is to be valued, and to be valued is to be significant. And that's a value that the world has given us in the sense that this is how you pursue it. Now, what's the second thing that compels you to sin if the world shapes your dreams? Is that the devil, the adversary, also influences our thoughts. In verse 2, it continues, the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Now, when we talk about the air, we're not talking about the air that we breathe, so much as it is different realms, different spheres in how the world in this particular time operated. Because we have this current level where we mere mortals 
realm. And then you have an upper realm where the evil spirits, the demons, and the guys with the pitchforks, and also the horns, that's where they inherit and live, right? And the person who's over and in charge of that particular realm is this prince, the prince of the power of the air. And you may think, well, if this prince of the power of the air is Satan or the adversary, then how come he doesn't show himself more regularly in, you know, in my life? And you may be right in saying that Satan doesn't show up in your room in this ghastly dark outfit, you know, with horns and pitchforks. But he's a little bit more subtle, particularly in this part of the world, where he may not show himself, but he does influence your thoughts. You know that voice that you hear when you're alone in your home, when no one's around, and you hear the thought, why don't you go online to that website to go view those images that you know you shouldn't be viewing, but no one will know. It's just between you and your internet browser. Or is that voice that speaks to you when you look at yourself in front of the mirror and you hear the voice look at you? No one ever loved you. Look at the way that you dress. Look at your physique. You'll never amount to anything. The voices of the devil are so very much alive. And he influences your thoughts, the things that you think about, and compels you to sin, to believe in it. And what's the third thing that Paul talks about? In verse 3, he talks about how our desires are shaped by the flesh. In verse 3, it talks about, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. That within us, there's this force, this inward disposition that Paul talks about in Romans and also in Galatians that is diametrically opposed from God, that the flesh says no to God, I rebel, I do not want you to be king because I will get what I want, when I want, how I want it. Without regard for what other people may think, because I myself am king. Is the attitude when you go to the potluck and you begin to load your plate because you're afraid that there might not be any food left if you come last. Right? That's the flesh. That's that inward disposition that says, I need to get out what's good for me. Now, not only does these three things, the world, the devil, and the flesh, influence and compel us towards sin, but it's setting us on a trajectory apart from God. It continues in verse 3. Paul says, and we're by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind, that we were objects of God's wrath. Now you think, you know, okay, well, Henry, are you talking about like thunder, lightning, earthquake swallowing us up? Kind of, sort of, not really. Because we experience some of God's wrath in part now, as it says in Romans chapter 1, and that we in some ways suffer the consequences of our sinful action that leaves us into greater despair. Remember when I was talking about how you are logging your time incorrectly? I guess cheating your company of two hours of work every week? 
Well, the natural consequence of it is that if your boss finds out, you're going to get terminated, fired. Or if you decide to pursue that career, put extra hours in and work hard, you're going to spend less time with your family. You're not going to physically care for yourself. And you're going to use your coworkers to every single way to make sure that you move up that corporate ladder. And even if you want to do well, let's say, in school, that you're willing to use even your classmates as a resource to get what you want. And the natural consequence of that is that people won't like you very much. You're not going to be very likable. You're going to be cranky, angry, frustrated. And the natural consequence of that is that you're going to be alone. And you're thinking, OK, well, that's what we experience now. But then even in eternity, you're going to ex experience that complete, total separation from God. And that will be his full wrath, where you are cast into a fire, a lake of fire, eternally separated from him. That is what it means to be set adrift from God. That sin does that to you. And unless we understand our dire situation, the danger of sin, we'll never truly appreciate grace because we'll never know what we've been saved from. So what then is the deliverance from sin? What is our rescue? What is our hope? Well, the hope is that God sends Christ, his son, to rescue us. That he, in his mind, loves us so much that he sends his son to die on a cross, rise again, on the behalf of rebels. People who are opposed to him so that they could have eternal life have a relationship with him. Now, the question is, well, why? And in verse 4, it says, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. And as I said earlier, it's because he loves you. Now, in Asian families, I know the word love may not mean very much because we don't hear it very much. But we do see it expressed. It's the love that a mother has when she gives up a kidney for her daughter who needs to have that kidney. It's that person who decides to volunteer to serve in the military because of his love for country at the sacrifice of even his own life. It is that love, that care for other people, that I'm willing to do anything it takes to make sure that the other person is cared for. And can you imagine the God who created the stars that you see at night, the air that you breathe in, the food that you partake in in every meal, the person who made you says, you know, I love you. So much so that I'm willing to give up what is precious to me, my only son, to redeem you. That's the love that God has for you. And that's what motivated him to rescue you. Well, how does this rescue work? It's to identify us fully with his son, Jesus Christ. That when God sees us, he doesn't see us in our sin, but he sees Christ. You may be asking, well, how does this identification work? Well, it's just like Justin Verlander, the baseball player, right? When he puts on the Houston Astro jersey, he is a Houston Astro baseball player. 
not a Detroit Lions baseball player. He is now fully identified with the team. Or, for those of you in the medical profession, it's when you put on the white coat and it says, no longer says Jack Chin, it says Dr. Jack Chin, right? Because the coat, the scope, what does it signify? It signifies that I am a certified doctor, an expert in everything physiological, that I'm able to give you a diagnosis and also prescribe you the means to health. That I've gone through four years of medical school and four years of residency and possibly even a postdoctoral degree. This coat, this scope, this name identifies me as an expert in the medical field. Right? Or even for you high schoolers. And when you put on that Letterman jacket with that, you know, that letter etched on this area here in your jacket, you are identified with what? The school. That I am a certified Bel Air High School student. That I stand for everything that this school stands for. Just as a person who puts on the uniform of our country represents the United States of America. That when God rescues us. He identifies us with Christ so that when we put on Christ, he sees us. Now, what are the privileges of that identification? What are the benefits? And there are many, but there are three in this particular text. The first one is the fact that we now have life. In verse 5, it says, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. That you are no longer dead, and you're not a zombie who's just able to wander, but you are now a full living being in Christ who has a relationship with God. You're made alive. Grace invigorates you. And not only does grace invigorate us, but also the fact that our identification with Christ also allows us to live to a new set of rules. It says in verse 6, and raised us up with him. Now you may think, well, being raised up with him doesn't really mean very much. But it means that you had to die before you're resurrected. So if you're dead, you're no longer bound by the rules of this world. But now you're raised up to a new set. Now you may be thinking, well, what does that even mean? Think with me of the little caterpillar, right? It crawls on the ground, and gravity controls its very life. It can't jump, skip, or hop, but it has to crawl with its many legs up the tree and over the limb, and it can't go anywhere. It's bound by gravity. But then when it gets into its cocoon and emerges as a butterfly, does gravity still hold it? No, because now it can fly, and it defies gravity. That you as Christians are no longer bound by the rules of this world, but now you are free to live to rules of above, new desires, new hopes, new dreams. So the question then is, what else does God give us in that identification with Christ? Not only does he give us new rules and new life, but he also gives us newfound authority. 
If you look with me in verse 6, it says, seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Now, if you recall, we have few realms. The first one is where we mortals live, and then you have where the evil spirits, demons, that's where they live. And then even above that is the heavenly realms, where God reigns. And God has taken you from down here and placed you up here, above those evil forces, against those demons and devils. And you're thinking, well, I don't see that in my life. But in the scriptures, you see Jesus commissioning his disciples to cast out demons, right? And that God has given you an authority to say to those thoughts from Satan, no, I don't believe them anymore. That's not true of me. It's as though God has given you a badge. He has deputized you into the kingdom and saying that now I have authority over these spirits, and over these evil things that control my thoughts. It's as though God has given you extra stars on your shoulder to give you authority over the evil forces. And that's why later in Ephesians, Paul talks about, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And that we put on the armor of God to do battle with those evil forces. So we know that God rescues us by identifying us with Christ. And we have these certain privileges to be made alive, to be raised with him, to be seated with him. But why? Why does God do this? It's so that he would receive the glory. In verse 7, it says, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. So that when Christ returns and we are in the kingdom, God will say, yeah, I know him. I saved him. I rescued him. Yeah, I know her. I know her life before she knew Christ. But I saved her. I rescued her. And that God would receive the glory of doing that work. Now you may be wondering, but why? And it's also the idea of grace. That God saves us because of his grace. Not because of anything that we did. Because if you notice in verse 5, it says, by grace you have been saved. And even in verse 7, it says, the riches of his grace. That we couldn't do anything to deserve that rescue. So we know then that God has sent his son to rescue us. And what is the decision that's before us? What do we have to do? And the decision that's before us that, is that we have to accept God's rescue. We have to accept it. We have to receive it. Because just because a gift is offered to you, it's not yours until you take it, until you grasp it. And even though God offers you salvation, Will you accept it? Because that's the decision before you. And how do we accept that gift? How do we accept that particular salvation? It's a response of belief. Because in verse 8, it says, For by grace you have been saved 
through faith. And it's not your, this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God. And what is this idea of faith? Is it just belief? Faith typically has these three components. I think I've told the college students this, is that there is a knowledge component, there's an assent component, and there's also the component of commitment. You have to know something in order to believe in it, in order to act on it. So for example, for you to believe or have faith in the fact that Hurricane Harvey hit, especially in other parts of the country, they had to see the images and know that a hurricane came. Then they had to believe that the hurricane actually hit Houston. And then they would demonstrate their commitment by doing something, whether it be coming to Houston to help serve clean homes, or even being able to send money to different organizations to do relief work. Now, for those of you who are much more science-oriented, let me put it this way. Let's say you know in your physics textbook that the acceleration of gravity is 9.8 meters per second squared. But you don't believe it, even though your physics textbook says that. So you go into the lab. You take three different types of balls. You take a plastic ball, <clears throat> a rubber ball, and a metal ball. You drop them at a certain height, and you calculate how fast does it accelerate. And as you do the calculations, you realize that gravity does indeed accelerate at 9.8 meters per second squared. Therefore, you believe in it. So then when you do your computations and your equations in the future from your textbooks to solve certain problem says, probably equation, you use g equals 9.8 meters per second squared. You know, you believe, you commit. Same thing for the Christian faith. You know that Christ has died for your sins. But do you believe it? Because what is preventing you from belief? And not only what is preventing you from belief, let's say you believe it, then what is preventing you from committing to living according to what you have believed? Now, I can't answer those questions for you. I can't read your mind. Ultimately, those questions are between you and the Lord. Knowing what you know this morning, what will you do? Will you believe? Will you commit? Or is there still more that you need to know? Accepting Christ as our rescue also involves humility. It requires the idea that I can't do it on my own. I need help. And in verse 9, it says, not a result of works so that no one may boast. That we have nothing to brag about in salvation. It's like a teen who comes in with a car in high school with a Tesla and says, yeah, that's my car. But then when you find out his parents paid for it, it's like, you're just spoiled. It's not your car. You have nothing to brag about, right? And it's the same idea that as we inherit salvation, there's nothing we can brag about. It's nothing that I did. No good acts. I didn't walk enough people across the street who are elderly. I didn't give enough to Salvation Army. I didn't say enough nice things to my spouse. None of those things would have contributed to your salvation. It's the fact that God intervened. Now, for those of you who say, well, I've already accepted Christ, rescue, I already believe that Jesus has saved me, well, then what else am I supposed to do? Well, the answer is that we accept God's rescue by doing the work that God has set before us. In verse 10, it says, for we are his workmanship. The idea of workmanship is this beautifully crafted crown with jewels and gold set upon the head of a king. Or 
a block of marble that is sculpted into this beautiful sculpture by the master sculptor. And that we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Now you'd be wondering, well, what kind of good works does God want us to do? Well, that's to build unity in the church. If you look later in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11, it says, And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, the teachers, what? To equip the saints for the work of the ministry, what? So that we would attain the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God. That the good work before you as Christians, as believers, is to build the unity of the church. And we all know how easy that is, right? We love spending time with our brothers and sisters in Christ, especially when they think differently than us, when they don't have the same temperament as us, when we have different hobbies than us. And we see this exemplified, you know, especially how do you build unity, especially in our small groups? When you facilitate a word time discussion, and as the leader, you put out a question, and there's nothing but silence. And I know silence is golden, but that's for the theater, not for small group. And you get frustrated because why are these small group members not answering the question? It was such a beautifully crafted question, and I get frustrated with them. And then I also get frustrated with myself because did I not write it well? Did I not craft it well? What is going on? So I get frustrated with myself, I get frustrated with them, and it results in anger, frustration, disunity. So what are you supposed to do? The work that God calls us to do, especially in verse 15 of chapter 4, it says, Rather speaking truth to one another. In love, it says, rather speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. That you have to have other brothers and sisters speak truth in your life, saying your significance is not based upon how well you write your question in word time and how many people respond. It's the fact that you are loved by God. And that's where your significance comes from. And that when you receive feedback, it's not as though it's an attack on your character that, oh, I'm an utter failure. I'm so terrible at facilitating word time. But it's the idea that I have my identity rooted in Christ, that any feedback that I receive is for the benefit of the kingdom. And not only do you need other people to speak that truth into your life, you need to learn to preach that truth to yourself. And that is where my significance comes from, is from Christ and Christ alone. Because I've been saved by grace through faith, and that is where my significance comes from. That's what it means to accept Christ's rescue. Because until we get to that point, we're able to preach to ourselves and for others to preach to us, we really are basing our significance on what we can do and what has already been done for you. And some people say grace is God's riches at Christ's expense. So we covered three things this morning. The first thing is the danger, the fact that sin sets us adrift from God. We talked about the deliverance, which is that God sends his son to rescue us. And the decision before you, before us, is to accept God's rescue. Let me close with this illustration. A large sum of money was given to Roland Hill to dispense to a poor pastor. Now, Roland, being very shrewd, said, well, if I give him all this money, he's going to waste it all. So I'm going to give him a portion at a time. So I'm going to give him a portion and attach a note that says, more to follow. Sends the portion, more to follow. Next time, he sends another amount, small portion, note, more to follow. Does it third, fourth, fifth time until the whole amount is given to this particular pastor. Now, C.H. Spurgeon used this story to illustrate 
that the good things we receive from God always comes with the idea and the prospect that there is more to follow. He said this, when God forgives our sins, there's more forgiveness to follow. He justifies us in the righteousness of Christ, but there's more to follow. He adopts us into his family, but there's more to follow. He prepares us for heaven, but there's more to follow. He gives us grace, but there's more to follow. He helps us to old age, but there's more to follow. And Spurgeon concludes, even when we arrive in the world to come, there will still be more to follow. That's what it means to accept God's grace. That we accept it now, there will always be more to follow. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this message this morning that speaks to our hearts and says that we are more desperately wicked and sinful than we can ever dare imagine. But Father, that there is a hope in Christ far more meaningful and far more lovely than we can ever dare hope. And we pray that we accept this grace this morning for those of us who do not know Christ as our Savior to believe in him and what he has done for us. And for those of us who have believed in Christ, that we do the good works that are set out before us and that is to build the unity of the church first by preaching to one another and also to ourselves. And we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.